Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to Backlisted and Happy New Year. We uh, enjoyed recording the Dark is Rising episode. Um which was our Christmas special, as most of you will know. We enjoyed recording that so much, and we enjoyed the response that we got from listeners so much. We thought we would start the year with something different. We thought we'd share with you an episode of Lot Listed that we recorded uh, in the summer this year about, about children's books, about children's books in particular that Andy, me, and Nikki had loved when we were young. It is obviously something we made originally for our patrons, but it's something that we think that, um, that all of you will enjoy. If you do enjoy it and uh, you want more of this, we record a lot listed every second week. So that's two lot listers a, a month. And they are available to all the people who uh, support us as patrons um, on Patreon at the lock listed level. So if you want to hear more of it, there's more. There's more there. And I think about now 20 episodes already that we recorded over the past, over the past year uh, and more to come this year. Oh, I'd like to add that we're back in a week's time with an episode on The Bloater, a novel called The Bloater by Rosemary Tonks. So we'll be back as normal next Monday with the first bat listed of 2021. Okay, see you. Enjoy the show. Without further ado, here it is, bat listed on children's reading. Well, thanks very much to Nick Riddle for sending us that arrangement of the Batlisted theme music, uh, which brought to mind a tea dance or the string quartet from the Lady Killers or Johann Sebastian Bach, which I think is why Nick has entitled it Bach Listed. Good afternoon, children. Oh, dear, that's sinister. Yes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so hello everybody thanks for tuning in to hello everyone we thought we would break from our already short tradition with lot listers today and we talk a bit about books from when we were kids or books that our children read or just the experience of reading in childhood because have we ever done a john have we done a children's book on backlisted the closest we got was but there were two, probably uh, Randall Jarrell, Randall Jarrell, and the animal family. And there are some fools who consider Red Shift by Alan Garner to be a book for the young, the yeah, for well. the young and, adult. And, and a indeed, long way the from Verona by Jane Gardam. But those are all books which 
without meaning to, I have to say, but they're all books that you can see. I mean, Long Way from Verona is now published as an adult book. Redshift is an incredibly challenging read, whatever age you are. The Moomins have all sorts of adult (laughs) melancholy and Veltschmerz in them. (laughs) But in terms of the actual, you know, joy, I suppose joy is one word for it, but the joy... Were you enthusiastic readers as children? Nick, were you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. I I think I was probably more of an enthusiastic reader then than I am now, if I'm honest. I was, you know, I I absolutely loved going to the bookshop and the library. And I was always very disappointed by my local library because it never changed. It only ever had the same Mm. books in it. You know what I mean? You go there and you'd hope there'll be a whole new But did your parents take you to the library? Was the library part of your, your family life when you were growing up? I was very lucky enough to live about three minutes walk from a very small but lovely library um and so yeah that was very much a part of my life I can even visualize the books mm. that were on the library you know that the, there and were ones and the, and the racks mm-hmm. you know the lovely spinning mm-hmm. racks oh, I love to spin a rack the, you don't the, get spinning racks in bookshops no they, they, waterstones we banned them yeah in, that uh, is actually John's John is partially responsible <laughs> for that well good work Johnny good work <laughs> Get those spinners out of this shop. Why? Why did you um, Because they were publisher branding. And what we felt was that books should be on shelves in alphabetical order so people could find them not. They, they cluttered. They got dusty. They were inadequate at displaying books. Nikki, properly. what it was, I can tell you, anyone who was alive at that point, is Waterstones <laughs> was intent on making the b format novel synonymous with waterstones rather than picador when customers would come in they would say where's your picador spinner because picador (laughs) pioneered the format of b format literary fiction they did and in the 80s that became the big market and it's true the b format paperback was what drove waterstones the front shop the front tables in waterstones that was the sort of the the tipping point and I, i think I think we've said this before on the podcast. There was an amazing group of, of, of younger writers, Angela Carter, Salman Rushdie, Bruce Chatwin, being published. But there was also publishers like Picador publishing them in B format, sort of slightly bigger paperback format, which people seem to associate with literary fiction and literary non-fiction. And Picador were the, the best. I mean, amazing, amazing. Listen. And uh, Waterstones and wanted a piece we didn't of want that them pie. In, we didn't want them in Picador spinners. We, want, <laughs> we wanted them on tables piled high. Good to well, have that confirmed. I remember in my library... <laughs> In the spinner, <laughs> I remember in the library had June. It always seemed to have Frank Herbert's oh, June. Okay, yeah, that was yeah, like yeah, the kind yeah. of classic yeah. library book that I remember. And me was going, oh, I don't know if I want to read that. A bit scary. But yeah, that was the book kind of book. Uh, I was very lucky. We lived very close to two libraries, sort of equidistant from two libraries. And my parents didn't buy many books, but they were very enthusiastic library users. So we used to go to the library every weekend, right? And the thing about libraries when we were growing up is, you know, libraries have become, for for economical, political reasons, often de facto social hubs. But in the 60s and 70s, Mm. they weren't those things. They were big rooms full of books in which you were expected to be quiet. Uh, And that was (laughs) fine. And I can really remember, I, I associate specifically the smell of the polish they used on parquet floors with 
literariness yes. and books and the enthusiasm for reading because that's what I grew up in a place called near Croydon called Coolsdon. There was one library in the, in Coolsdon and just up the hill in Old Coolsdon and they both used that polish on their parquet floors and they hadn't covered up their parquet floors. They were still old-fashioned municipal buildings. They weren't yeah. being made more mm. user-friendly. The idea was you went there and you met them on the terms they wanted to set. Yeah, no primary colours. <laughs> right, no, no, no bean bags. <laughs> How did you know what to choose if you were saying your parents didn't buy a lot of books? So did you, ha- did you have, Andy Miller, a lot of books in your house when you were growing up? Well, we didn't. I mean, the thing is, I always I love asking people what I'm going to ask you, John, in a minute. What was on your what were on your parents bookshelves? Because my parents didn't believe in buying lots of books. Right. And I think the notion of buying lots of books, funnily enough, we were just talking about Waterstones, is probably a thing that starts in the 1980s. I think you're right. And reading, they loved reading. They would borrow books all the time. But the idea of bookshops as destination places and cultivating your own library, that, that was just that that was not on their in their cultural bracket, I suppose you would say. So the books that we had... Mum had subscribed to a a monthly book club that sent you a novel once a month in the 60s. And we had like a glass fronted bookshelf full of those things, which was sort of Neville Shute and Elizabeth Googe. And none of the the books had um, dust jackets because mum and dad had thrown them away immediately. The book (laughs) arrived because they were... That was the thing. But that's what a dust jacket was. They were there to keep the dust off and then you threw them away. And then on the main, the main books were kept on a shelving unit that dad made in the garage. I can remember him making it in about 1975. And it was a... He got a design out of a magazine. And my dad was quite a skilled carpenter. So it had... It doubled as a kind of a shelf on which the glassware lived and there was a drinks cabinet built into it and there was also on those bookshelves were things like an AA guide to something or other and Alistair Cook's America and everybody's parents seemed to have Alistair Cook's America when I was growing up John. Do you think it was about people kept hold of the sort of big non-fiction things and the, and the and the fiction was much more yes. thing you got from the library yes also my parents were the types of people for whom books were there john i'm sure will back me up here in terms of why people buy books and my parents were very in the much in the category of they preferred to have books that were useful mm. rather than books that inspired reflection whether they were fiction or non-fiction that's not to that's not to say they weren't people who reflected about things they they did but what i'm trying to say is we didn't have iris murdoch lying around because they didn't read that kind of fiction and they weren't right. interested in that a book had a function they were much more comfortable with books as functional things whereas john i think grew up in an environment i mean your parents were teachers were they john they were both teachers well yeah my my dad my dad was a teacher who became a, a priest vicar and my mum was a teacher and my mum the thing that's most i most remember is my mum did an open university degree in the like late 60s so she, and it was incredible it lasted five years and oh, she was doing yeah, it was a humanities degree so the bookshelves we had a lot of books relatively to most of my friends at home I mean your friends had come over and go oh god you've got loads <laughs> of books in your hand and a lot there was a lot of theology quite a lot of radical theology honest to god by John Robinson and and, and sort of lots of Marxist texts my dad was a very keen left-wing priest and lots of history. He was very keen on uh, archaeology. We were a member of one of those book clubs when I was 
probably about 10, he just, he'd got a book, book called by Jeffrey Ash called In Search of Arthur's Britain. And he decided we were going to go and, <laughs> we were going to go and search the sort of tintagel of various kind of archaeological sites. I also really remember him once being outraged that they'd sent him a free copy, hardback copy of The Honorary Consul by Graham Greene. I don't want this. He said, you know, I don't, you know, he's, if he read, he did read fiction, but he would read it on holiday and he would read it in paperback and he didn't want to own it. And it was like, this is just a, oh, I don't want to have this book in my house. It says nothing. It's almost like it says nothing about me. But also it's presumptuous, yeah. right? It's presumptuous of them to put your dad in a bracket where he becomes the sort yeah. of person who would want to read the new novel yeah. by Graham Greene. My mum was having to read classics. So we got I had an amazing collection of classics, you know, uh, um, all of the English 19th century classics that you imagine, but not a lot of contemporary fiction. So, yeah, it was a strange collection, as I say, of sort of history, archaeology, <laughs> radical <laughs> theology and 19th century fiction. <laughs> and did you read any of it, John? Well, I used to do this thing. I, I kind of felt I needed to educate myself. I don't know. So I would I would pick really hard-looking books off the shelf and sort of get bored quite quickly reading them. You know, I remember one book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Frieri, which is a kind of a handbook of Latin American radical theology. <laughs> but I'd, sometimes I'd pick up things and they'd be I'd be really amazed. So there was one book, Achilles' His Armour, by a classical writer called Peter Green, who it turns out was a great friend of William Golding's, I discovered in reading John Kerry's autobiography. And I suppose, like you, Andy, that the library was an important thing for me. But the most important thing, I would say the influence on my reading, when my parents decided at some point in 1972 or something like that they were going to give me 5p a week pocket money i saved up that 5p every week wow <laughs> i mean you said at the beginning about reading reading was everything it was it was the thing i loved most about my childhood i mean i loved a lot of stuff but i loved reading more than anything else i think you know without getting too personal about it but my parents marriage was not great and there was a lot of anger and tension in the home and reading was what i right. did to escape and I, I it's funny as you get older I, I sometimes think that it's still what I do you know it's still my happy place can I add to that a reading was an escape for me as well but also I am gonna say I've said this in the year of reading dangerously but I, it was quite important to me to say it again reading is was and probably still is the only thing at which I have excelled <laughs> I was really shit hot at reading from the age of about four that must have made you pretty good in other areas let's be honest but, it does have a knock-on effect no 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 but but the point is that was the thing that it was the only thing I was good at at school right but listen to you now how good you are explaining and how good you are at, you know and talking that and that's only come from yeah, reading but, but right? Nick, I've, I've learned nothing since the age of four <laughs> so I, I've but, learned no other skills so I report this as a statement of fact, because it is a fact, that I'd read pretty much everything in the school library at primary school. And the head teacher rang up mum and dad and said, can you start sending Andrew in with his own books? Because we've, because we've run out of fit. We've run out of stuff for him to read. You know, we were talking about books our parents had. Mm -hmm. 
I just want to add one on on, on. John. I was John so interesting to what about John was saying that he had the, the books that came in from different sources. And Nikki, you were saying about books that you tried to read. The best book that Mum and Dad owned was a book called The People's Almanac by David Wolachinsky and Irving oh, yeah, Wallace, yeah, which no. Dad had been given by an American business contact. And it was like those guys went on to do the Book of Lists, which were big bestsellers in the 1980s. But their first book in the 70s was this book, The People's Almanac. And the People's Almanac was basically like the, it was like the internet before the internet. <laughs> it was just like this massive thousand page book of just stuff. It probably influenced QI, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just this book full of interesting material, right? And so I just, there's a thing I wrote here that I say it was like the Wikipedia of its day. A 1500 page repository of whatever information its compilers found colourful, revelatory or entertaining the useful and the useless side by side. It was with the People's Almanac that I first scared myself stupid with the doomsday prophecies of Nostradamus, studied the inconsistencies in the Warren report into the assassination of President Kennedy, and at the age of 12, convinced myself that I had somehow contracted syphilis. (laughs) What what a book. (laughs) True, all, all, all factually accurate description of that. So... Nikki, what did you? Were there books like? Were there many books in um, in your house when you were growing up? Well, my mum is a big reader and now quite a big audiobook listener. I'd say she's probably transferred onto that. So she's always read, but we didn't have a very big house. We had a flat, and so there wasn't very much stuff. It wasn't. It wasn't a house yeah. with lots of stuff. It was a, a house with less stuff. And I think you know you were saying about how we didn't we didn't collect books. And I wondered if it was of its time, like you didn't own a TV, you rented a you TV. You rented a TV. You know, and I wonder yeah. if that's sort of part of the whole thing of you rented a telephone. N- nothing ownership of stuff. Well, it was definitely not in our house anyway. That was in the sort of 70s and 80s. It was like less less stuff. But that's not to say she was she loves classics and so there was lots of EM Forsters and things like that around and and Austin and you know so of the books that were there oh and War and Peace obviously everybody's house had to have War and Peace not mine so mate. I, really okay <laughs> there was that War and Peace but and and she would be the one who would kind of push me to read and and do cultural things perhaps more than I was inclined so she would be the sort of the pusher of high quality literature yeah. sometimes I accepted it and sometimes I didn't but but, that, so, but that's know. very interesting so you did have is that true with you John as well so you had a parent who was plugged into the canon if you like and and had a sen- had a literary sensibility yeah i don't know that my mum did really because i mean she she did she was an english te- english and drama teacher so she she was incredibly supportive we were always making nature tables and doing stuff and going on you know improving walks but i was so you know my 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 five p's basically puffins little early puffins of which i've got loads of them were 25p so you know you could you could say in the early 70s you could yeah you could save up and (laughs) so why don't we just say what we're all holding up to show one another so what have you got there i've got the the 1972 paperback the book of goblins edited by alan garner yeah, and a 1968 Giant Under the Snow by John Gordon. Oh, John Gordon, yes, great. Nookie, what have you got? I've got this. Must have been my mum's. Oh no, here we go. 1971, Emil and the Detectives. Um, oh er- yes, Eric Kastner. Yeah, and it's got my brother's name in it, Jerry. There we go in the front. So that was our book as a kid. 
I'm holding up the 18th Emergency by Betsy oh, Byers, which I talked that. about on Batlister before. I think I talk about it on the Long Way from Verona episode. But I, can I just show you? So this book is really significant for three reasons. The first is I just loved it. It was my yeah, favourite. Yeah, yeah. When I was being bullied at school, this is a book about being bullied and I found it very helpful uh, and funny. And I first came into contact with it because it was read out on Jack and Ori and Jack and Ori was a major... Yeah. Jack and Ori was a bigger influence on me probably than my parents were in terms of what I read or, or, or the school library was. You know, Jack and Ori was, was great. Can you also see what's in the front here? I'm just going to show them. Can you see that? Oh, I love oh, that. Oh, you had your own sticker. Yes. We had, exact, we had exactly the same ones, Andy. It's a puffing club book plate. And you can see from the library of Andrew Miller, there it is written Amazing. on there. Were either of you in the puffing club? Yes. I can't remember if I was. I remember the puffing club, but I don't remember it was, if I was it in was, it. It was, I mean, I was absolutely, I mean, you know, I was born in 63. So I was seven in 1970. And that's the thing. I didn't need my mum's recommendations because, I mean, at school libraries, reading aloud at school was a big thing. So the John Gordon mm. I was read aloud at school. Jack and Ori. I mean, my mum was, I mean, I was just reading all the time. So my mum just was, was happy that I was reading. And I think, you know, Puffin Post and the Puffin Annuals. What did the Puffin Club do? Did they send you books or how did it work? Not. They sent you, you had a magazine called the Puffin Post and then you'd get a Puffin Annual at the end of the year and you got a badge. And back then that was enough. <laughs> but the, br- the brilliance of it was, Nick, that actually... They tried to revive the Puffing Club a few years ago. Unfortunately, this is locked down, so uh, it's unlikely someone from Penguin will hear this. <laughs> but they really misjudged how to do it because it was too transparently a way of shilling their books to kids right. or their parents. The, looking at back at the Puffing Club of the 70s, it was really skillfully... I mean, I'm not saying that it wasn't a selling exercise because it was, but it was editorially led, Right. It was very much about Kay, Kay Webb, Webb, who yeah. ran Puffin in that era, very much about her trying to spread an enthusiasm for reading. Mm. They used to do these amazing mini festivals, the Puffin Club, in the summer holidays. And I can remember coming up to London at least twice and going to one big Puffin Open Day at the Commonwealth Institute in Kensington and meeting like Quentin Blake... Wow. And K.M. Payton, yeah. I think, uh, Spike Milligan, maybe. Oh, yeah. And, a, and somebody in a fat puffin suit. And then going to another one at the ICA. They had it at the ICA. <laughs> in my first 20 years of life, I went to the ICA twice. One was to go to the big puffing club day, and the other was to see a gig by Bogshed in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So, like, those were my two introductions to the Institute of Contemporary Art were, were, were an NME-sponsored gig and a Puffin-sponsored uh, event. Do you know what's so great, though, actually, is that we, they might not have got the Puffin Club right, but books still really matter to yeah, young, yeah. young people right now. And, 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 and the passion and this brilliant books being written for children. And it's so, I think, you know, and actually, I'm just speaking for my own kids, but, you know, for their whole childhood, authors have mattered more than anyone else there's no celebrity that interests them more than authors and those have been the big people in their lives yeah. and it's really That's it's really I mean, brilliant it's, it hasn't it's changed wonderful really to hear that because 
I mean, I think that's been true with my boys too. But I used to get very cross when I was at Waterstones is that you'd be, you know, those annoying middle-class dinner parties when everybody's saying, of course, children don't read anymore. And you say, well, your children read, your children read, my children read. Who's Who are these people? Oh, you mean people who are not sitting at this table? Their children don't read. Well, I can tell you they do. You know, if you go into schools. I mean, I used to love going up to, to hang out with Elizabeth Hamill in the, in, in the Waterstones in Newcastle and the amazing events that she they were put on there. That, like you, Andy, I remember that clearly from school i remember meeting michael bond once at a, at a bookshop oh and a guy yeah wrote bannington it was like this is incredible but the great thing now is that kids can so my son was tweeting robert much the other day and he, yeah, he wrote back that is, and it's a yeah, that's, you know, that's amazing that's cool. i think i mean uh, authors not unreasonably sometimes feel uneasy or complain about the extent to which they can't be the person who sits behind the desk and does nothing else And I I have a lot of sympathy for that. But I do think equally in the children's world, it's very inspiring, I think, for for children and for young people to have that dialogue of the kind you're talking about, Nikki, that writers aren't these people off in an ivory tower doing this thing they can't do, but actually they're human beings like them. And if they put the hours in and they... Is they can aspire to it. Who was the writer that you aspired to be? You know, who was your favourite writer? Did you have one when you were growing up? Now, that is a good question. I think like lots of people, I don't think I got my head round the idea of the writer being the person who sat there and actually did it until I was slightly older. I think when you're a child child, you identify, probably identify with books before you identify with writers and you begin to understand. I mean, I read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when I was 11. I remember that coming out in paperback because I, I love the radio series so much. And I, in my own mind, I think of Douglas Adams as the first person who I, I got my head around the idea of writing being a thing that you did, of him as a writer sitting not writing, funnily enough, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is what he did a, a lot of. A great inspiration for me. Um, <laughs> but also Adams kind of built that into his shtick. You know, his public persona was very much about being the writer who missed deadlines. And so he kind of understood how that worked. But that's not to say there weren't books, but there were there were books, series of books that I liked. And we, we've talked about this on Blacklisted before, but I really loved the Moomin books. And I understood all the Moomin books for why one person who was called, as I called them, Tove Janssen, which I now know is incorrect. Tove. Tove, is that right? Tove. Tove. You can never get this right. Tove Janssen. So I liked those sets of books. I, I like a boy, I think, probably, if we're going to make that judgment. I did like, you know, sets of things. I liked the Moomin books and I liked Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. I liked those as sets. But then, Nikki, you were saying that you really liked the Sweet Valley High books, didn't you? I sort of love-hated them. I mean, I have to say, they're awful books. But they, <laughs> they are. They are. And I, But I probably read... I read I read a ton of them and there's about, I looked up now just on Wikipedia, there's 181 of them, you know, Jesus. and I thought I'd read quite a lot. Yeah, but they're, but they're, you say they're not awful, are they? Because because you wanted to just read another one and read another one. No, you're right. They're not awful. They were they were sort of very readable and the library had a lot of them, right? So that would be one you, right. you wouldn't buy. You go to the library because you read, yeah. read them in a day. And they were about this, these pair of twins, Jessica and Elizabeth, who were kind of blonde, <sighs> One, and one was a goodie and one was yeah. a baddie. Good things would happen to Elizabeth and Jessica, she was baddie. And, you know, evil Jessica, lovely Elizabeth. And sometimes they sort of switched over, but generally that was the vibe. By Francine Pascal, and you can see speech marks here, because <laughs> Francine Pascal, it turns out, did not write 181 books in four years. 
or something like that. You know, she obviously had a team. An of atelier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's oh, right, yeah. the school of. Well, it reminds me of, uh, of. My, my daughter recently, or well, not recently, God, when she was probably about the same age, but eight or nine, got into Flower Fairies set. There's a load of books oh called Flower God. Fairy. And then they go <laughs> things like the Flower Tooth Fairy or the Babysitter Fairy. Anyway, I'm not going to judge them. She loved them. And they were by Daisy Meadows. What a name, Daisy Meadows. She was really into this. Yeah, she was really into this. Daisy so I suggested Meadows. she write to Daisy Meadows and tell her how much she liked them. And we were, she was writing this letter. Oh, Lord. And I, I thought this is a kind of, you know, good educational thing. I, and then it, I looked into Daisy Meadows. And, of course, Daisy Meadows was a, another speech marks because, yes, she is not. I Read it. I hate to tell you, listeners, but yeah, Daisy yeah, Meadows yeah. is not a real person. <laughs> But but that's just like a series. There's a series where they called. Are they they when when my son was uh, I, this is about ten years ago now. Uh, my son was really into. Are they called Dragon Quest or yeah. yes, yeah, Beast Quest. Yeah. Beast Quest. He was really yeah. into the Beast yeah. Quest books, and they're written by the same guy whose name escapes me. And I remember we we were on a Easter. This is a very thing that families do. We were on an Easter break in yeah. York. Why not? <laughs> because it's educational. And... Did you go to this terrible Yorvik Centre with all the smell, all the smelly of Vikings? We did, John. Indeed. Anyway, we went into like either Smith. I know Smith. It wasn't Waterstones. It was Smith. We were in Smith's in York. My son struck up a conversation with the chap who was stocking the shelves in the children's department about how great the Beast Quest books were. And he was going, uh, uh, so I think I need, so he's chatting away and he says, I'm going to get these two new ones. I haven't got these. I hope they keep making them. And the guy who worked in Smith's in York just looked at him very sweetly. I went, I'll tell you what, son, if you keep buying them, <laughs> we talk about I, I voted for you as an independent candidate Good that idea. phrase that phrase has become uh if you keep buying them they'll keep making them has become a, a phrase we use a lot this sending in stuff is interesting isn't it is it sending into authors my obsession when i was really young before i'd really started reading fiction in the mid 60s i got into this i spy series nicky do you remember the i spy books no Let's have a look. Oh, I do. I do. Big Chief Ice Spy. Can you, I can remember where he lived. Can you? <laughs> Shepherd's Bush Green. <laughs> John, hold it up again. Hold it up again. I want to see. It's cool. That's my starter book. And this is my, this is the one I loved. It's almost falling apart. My bird's book. And if you filled a book out, you'd send it to him. Shepherd's Bush and Green. And he would, <laughs> and he would, um, he would stamp it and send it back. And, there was all these there were all these codes and really exciting things you could do but unfortunately for me all the codes were in the daily mail and my father would not have the daily mail in the house so i i, I felt like i was brilliant if you were a but you know if you're a redskin there's a whole sort of thing you're supposed to do you're supposed to you're supposed to make a totem pole out of balsa wood it can be carved in with a sharp penknife and a broom handle makes a good totem pole a nice by meeting round a campfire has a magic all of its own when you meet in the open air try to have a real fire of sticks but get permission from the grown-up pale faces and see your fire causes no danger. <laughs> Love this. <laughs> oh, and then they you'd have the books. You... They were the sort of books that your parents would buy you, or my parents would buy me if we were going on a long car journey. Absolutely right. So they'd they they'd say they <laughs> I spy book of pylons. <laughs> <laughs> so it's something to look at. Some of them were really not difficult to find. Like a butcher wasn't so difficult to find. <laughs> have they got? But have they got your were, writing I mean, in there from when you were a kid, John? Yeah. Look. Oh. The, Yes, show us, show us. There's well, there's, where's the find? Of, there's some couple of funny ones. Yes, there's May, May 1971. I'd seen seen some sort of calf in Planky oh. Woods, 
And, oh, but, look but, at that! But the, the my favourite ones are the birds. I get very aggressively look look at that all all sort of really badly handwritten in 1970, oh, I think, which is when I would have been six. Wow. Okay, so here's the question. So I have, as you know, I have children aged 11 and 14, 13. And they're forever clearing out their books. At the moment, there's a pile of David Walliams and whatever ready to go. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, get rid of it. But like, how much of that stuff should we keep? You know, because I, I can't keep oh, it all. So, there's so oh, much of it. I know we got rid of a lot of it as well. I mean, I, I, it's tricky, isn't it? I'm glad I kept the books I kept. And the books I kept tend to be the ones that were precious. I don't know. It's, I, I don't know what, what the right advice on that is. I mean, look look at this. This, this is this. Oh. Look how beautiful that just as a Arthur bit of design in great northern it's, yeah okay so that's the one that's the that's the book i first got i remember borrowing from a library because i i was nut, nuts about birds and i said i want a book is there a book where one of the characters is a naturalist or a bird watcher and my mum bless her somehow found that's the last of Arthur Ransom's Swallows and Amazons. It's a book about the rare sighting of a great northern diver up in Scotland. And that was it. I was away. I read, I couldn't put them down. And I, I honestly think the children in those books became my friends. You know, they were friends who didn't judge you. You could go back to them and, you know, John was still being mature. Nancy was still being kind of lively. Uh, are me and Nikki like that for you now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know this is an event this is an adventure we're not judging you John. <laughs> no but you know what i mean it's yeah it's yeah. one of the great things that i always say to to people about reading is that you can go back you can go back and you can reread and you can and you they're still there those people are still there still doing stuff i think audio audiobooks offer a lot here as well actually so i listened to a lot of audiobooks as a child and i and i got a lot of comfort from that particularly at night time and both my children do the same thing and my son listens to Arthur Ransom every Does night. Does he? Well, he uh, yeah, yeah. Oh my absolutely. god! And, yeah, Still? and he, he's making. Yeah, he's making his way through. Because if you're an Audible subscriber, you, you get one a month. So he's making his way through, and he's probably on about book eight or nine uh, who, now. And he, he loves. Who's them. reading them? Mm, that's good. God, I'd have to look it up because I haven't listened to them. <laughs> I read them. I mean, one of the great things, obviously, also is having kids and reading your favourite books to them, which doesn't always work. But I remember reading the Arthur Ransoms to the boys. Not all of them, but I re- certainly read Swallows and Amazons and a few more. And you do learn pretty quickly who could write yeah. <laughs> from those books yeah, that you loved really in childhood. And- it's narrated by Gareth Armstrong, whoever he is, yeah. But like, um, and you- that's quite interesting, though, Nikki. That I mean, I think the thing is, the widespread listening to audiobooks is something that's really happened in the last five to ten years, because obviously there's less need to abridge stuff because it can be put on a phone and it's much easier to access, and everybody's got audio devices that they carry around with them and all that mm. kind of thing. Must have been quite unusual for you as a youngster to be listening to audiobooks. I think that's I think that's mm. quite an unusual thing in the really? 1980s. 80s, yeah. yeah. So I listened to two audiobooks pretty much religiously which was Secret Garden read by Glenda Jackson. Brilliant. Uh, right? Brilliant. Was, Glenda. And and Glenda Jackson which was very strange when she came knocking at my door because she was standing to be an MP and mm. uh, and we had a as I said we <laughs> we we lived in a flat and so we had one of those intercoms. So she, I answered the door and it was, hello. And I was just totally like, <laughs> oh, my God, it's Mary Abbott. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a nervous breakdown. 
<laughs> Excellent. Yeah, the Secret Garden. No, no, well, no. Tell us, tell us. We just, we both, John and I, had to read the Secret Garden a, a little while ago. Well, it was probably about two or three years ago. It was the last thing that we did with Matt. Actually, it was before Nikki you joined us. Anyway, we had to read the Secret Garden. I'd never read the Secret Garden, being a boy. Um, I'd seen the TV series that was on the BBC in the 70s, which I really, really loved. But I thought The Secret Garden was just a fantastic book. I thought it was terrifically interesting as well. Is the, um, I can't remember having read it. I'm, I remember it much more having listened to it. But is it all written in Yorkshire dialect? Because it's spoken, a lot of the, the Yorkshire is spoken the, the quite di- strong yeah, dialect. Yeah, there is, there's a lot, there is a lot of, of dialect. Some there's of a lot yeah. more dialect in it than you would yeah. normally get in a, in a, in a uh, ostensibly children's novel, I would have to say. Yeah. And also there's much more, um, you know, The Secret Garden falls into that category of books where they pile on the misery for the protagonists early <laughs> on because kids love reading about other kids being either captured or tortured or bereaved. And they do that in The Secret Garden. It's really, they really set her up to be an You know, she's an orphan and she's sent halfway across the world. And she's a brat. She's horrible. (laughs) Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Do either of you remember the first book that made you actually cry? I mean, good question. I certainly cried when I read it to my son, and I imagine I cried at the time, is the la- the final chapter of The House at Pooh Corner by A.A. Mill. The, oh, yeah. If you need me, if you want to find me, we'll, yeah. we'll be playing forever in the Hundred Acre Wood. <laughs> Even as I say it to you, I might have to pause for a moment. I remember just a one book called I Am David. And Home. Oh, yes. And Holt. And Home. And Holt. And, ho- and yeah. Home. And yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't think I'd ever sort of cried real tears at a book before, but it was, it was so, it was, I mean, it's an incredibly moving story. Not that I can remember much, except that the final words are, I am. <laughs> oh, it's in the tradition of, uh, we, 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 we quote the title in the last line. And that's how I knew I am David. Yeah, the end. Uh, good night, so, good night, you, Mr. Tom. That was quite sad. That's that's pretty oh, sad. Yes. Yeah. So what were your Nikki? So you were saying you were listening to going back to you saying you were listening to audiobooks. Did you have them like on a Walkman? Yeah, I would have had or, them on a cassette player of some sort. Probably one of those ones with, you know, buttons. How many cassettes? Uh, well, um, so my favourite, which is what I really, you know, absolutely loved and listened to for about, I don't know, years and years, was Ballet Shoes by Noel Stretfield. By Noel Stretfield. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I mean, I listened to it so much that I could probably, I could probably still recite it to you. You know, yeah. it, it, it's that, it's that, you know, and I, I have 30 years later, whatever, I could still probably, you know, definitely bits of it. And 
I just it's just comfort. It's so com and I and I'm saying my my daughter listens to Harry Potter in the same way now in that she's over Harry Potter. She's 13 and she's past that, but she's she still listens to it as a sort of like retreat at night into comfort listening. And I did that with ballet shoes, which I absolutely and what, loved. What was it about uh, about ballet shoes which appealed? Did you do ballet when you were a, no, a, no. a kid? No, not at all. I got kicked out of ballet class pretty much first or second lesson for being kind of, you know, <laughs> absolutely, it's never going to happen. And, I, and you know me, right? I am not a... I wouldn't say I'm a particularly girly girl. I've never been like that. And yet all the books I read. Yeah, uh, right. Know, I was going to say. Consistently yes. very much like boarding school. I loved all that kind of, you know, autumn term, <laughs> summer term, spring term. Mallory Towers. Uh, you know, all that stuff. And and yeah. uh, and I, I love Noel Stretfield. And I just, and I liked, you know, Judy Bloom. And I like going progressed into kind of romance and teenage books like that. And I. I just think it was just real escapism and, and I love, yeah. So, I, and I, funny enough, one of the things you were saying about John, that you had your five pence and you would go and spend it on books. I would go and I had a very key good ruse going on for a while where I'd stay the Friday night at my friend Lucy's house and, uh, and get pocket money from her mum on Saturday morning and then go home and get pocket money from my mum. Oh. Right? That was a, <laughs> that double, was a dipping. double dipping. The, double dipping. Right? So, so, but then the grift. The grifting, yeah. Always working the good, grift. Mate. And, and what I would do is I'd go to the shop, right, and I would get me and Lucy, but particularly I'd love this, Mandy comics. Oh, right? yes. Right? And Mandy, Mandy, she's holding I'm one holding up. I'm holding up a Mandy, and they, you know, they would be things like, they're letting girls into St. Justin's. <gasps> That's the story. <laughs> Trading yeah, places, yeah, city yeah, or country. Yeah, it's really all just like that. And I, and I love that. I just, you know, and it's really interesting because it's not at all who I am and it's not at all, but it, it just shows you that what you read is not necessarily related to who you are in that way. Also, can I just say that you, you was asking us, what do you hold on to? You've held on to those copies of Mandy, yeah. where you might yeah, have yeah. cleared out other books, absolutely. right? So why did you hang on to those? Well, yeah, absolute nostalgia. I think there comes to a point where you hang on to them for so long that you can't possibly, you know, it's not very, there's a period of time where they're recent and you think, oh, I'll get rid of it. And then if you've held on to them past that point, you can never let them go, can you? You can never get rid of them because they're already historical artifacts in your in your life i i know that i would go to the library and if i read a book that i liked i would borrow it again the mm. following week so i could read it again and then i'd read it again and in that way i suppose then and then i would occasionally buy books my auntie joycey bless her rest her soul would always send me a book token for birthday or christmas there was a poll of the crap children's presence of the 70s which was won by book tokens <laughs> again i don't really fit in i they, that was not that's not my experience everybody also this is a, an important point to make i would take the book token and i wouldn't go to an independent children's bookseller because we didn't have one i'd go to smith's in the Whitgift center in croydon and guess what it was the best bookshop around. Good shop. It was yeah. brilliant, right? And and so, I mean, I've talked on Batlisted about the sort of the children's novels. We, we've been doing this for a while, so there's been several opportunities for me to talk about them. I loved a book by Mary Stewart called Ludo and the Star Horse. Oh, I, love I bought the that on your Emer recommendation. There you go. I bought the 18th Emergency. I love the 18th Emergency by Betsy Byers. We've talked about the Moomins on Batlisted. They were my favourite books. But I also 
childhood reading is very Catholic, you know. Uh, uh, um, yeah. You haven't yet learnt about the TLS or the equivalent. You haven't yet learnt about the canon. And you just read whatever you want. And my parents were brilliant, I must say. They would let me in the kind of as long as they're reading bracket. They would just let me read anything. And also because I was so keen to read, to some extent, they just let me just hoover up whatever was around. So in addition to those more more librarian approved titles, I also I love Marvel comics and I love the little bind ups of peanut strips yeah. and you know how I feel about peanuts. I think it's one of yeah, the yeah. great artworks, text comic of the late twentieth century. I love Winnie the Pooh. Oh, I was gonna show you something, Andy. Eeyore, you know, the, yeah, of the on. few books that I've kept. I love peanuts too. Oh my goodness! Oh, there those. Those. Yeah. oh right. there's all the coronets one. Yeah. Just show them that. Yeah, Here's yeah. to you, Charlie Brown. I've got loads. Uh, yeah, beautiful. I love them yeah. as well. Watch out, Charlie Brown. Yeah. Uh, Playballs. So the thing about those books as well is those books were available. And this is a really important thing. You could buy those books in. You couldn't. You didn't have to go to bookshops to buy those books. But those books were on spinners, outlawed by the evil Waterstones. <laughs> those, bo- <laughs> those books were on spinners in like the beach huts where you went on holiday as a kid, and they were in in newsagents, like Mad Books. I love oh, Mad, Mad Books, books yeah. the bind ups of yeah, Mad yeah. Magazine. And but the books I loved above all others of that kind. I'm just I'm showing I'm I'm holding one up now. Doctor Who, brilliant. Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters by Malcolm Hulk. And the reason I chose this, was two reasons why I chose this one. We might do a show later in the year of Batlisted about uh, Terence Dix, who who died last yeah. year, who wrote many of these books and was one of the great uh, Doctor Who writers, but also because Terence Dix is so important in encouraging thousands and thousands of children to read via these books that lots of lots of kids who did not grow up in a bookish environment would buy Doctor Who books because they loved Doctor Who. And Terence was so brilliant about transferring the thrill of Doctor Who onto the page. And also Terence Dix, as as we might talk about, Terence Dix came from a working class home, went to grammar school, studied under F.R. Leavis. (laughs) Did you know that? (laughs) I didn't know that. Did not get on with F.R. Leavis. Him and Howard Jacobson. And you famously. can see a lot of the choices that Terence Dix made in his life in terms of a democratic instinct. Was, was a fuck you was to leave this. Fuck you to leave this. Absolutely. So we might talk about that on Ballast Love there. it. But I just want to talk about The Cave Monsters, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters by Malcolm Hulk. And there's two things to say about this book. The first is Malcolm Hulk was a regular Doctor Who writer in the John Pertwee and Tom Baker era of the early 70s. He was a communist. And most of his stories can be interpreted from an extremely left-wing, subversive perspective. And this one, The Cave Monsters, is a, a, his novelization of a story called Doctor Who and the Silurians, which uh, was one of the early John Pertwee stories, the third Doctor stories. And Simon Gerrier on Twitter reminded me this week that Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters has something in common with a book that we've talked about on Backlisted quite recently. I'm just going to read you a bit from the prologue, a couple of paragraphs in the prologue. And when I've read those, I want to tell you to tell me if it reminds you of a, a specific novel. So here we go. Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, Malcolm Hulk, prologue, The Little Planet. Ockdell stood watching as the last of the young reptile men and women took their turn to go down to safety in the lift. The gleaming metal doors of the lift were set in rock. The doors slid open and shut soundlessly, taking another group of Ockdell's people 
to safety below the ground. Across the valleys, the sun was already setting, and its last light made the green scales of the young people shine brilliantly. Octel wondered when he would see the sun again. And then we, we meet a few other characters of, the fa- of Octel's family. And then the last paragraph of the prologue goes, The surface of the earth changed and changed again. Whole continents moved their position. The earth's crust folded over on itself not once but many times. The underground shelters of the sleeping reptile people sank deeper and deeper below the surface. In many places, rocks and mountains formed over their shelters. The reptile people remained in their state of hibernation, knowing nothing of the world they had lost. They were to remain like that until man, Homo sapiens, started to probe beneath the crust of what he now considered was his planet. Now, what novel does that remind you of? So, so, so perfect, isn't it? It's like The Inheritors. Yeah. It is lock yeah. and far. And, and Simon Guerrier and our, our guest, Ian McCormack, was saying that they, they in, Simon was saying, he's a Doctor Who expert, that this had never occurred to him. But that perspective of the reptile people looking at Homo sapiens, it's hard not to think that Golding, whose book had been published 10, 13, 14 years earlier, had fed into the culture in exactly the way that we were talking about on the podcast and was being was appearing in things like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Doctor Who. And as Una said, it's a first contact. It's a first contact She did, didn't she? She called it. And that's exactly what that story is about. It's a story about this ancient civilization, far more sophisticated than man, who when they meet Homo sapiens is utterly repulsed by them because they're, they're, they're clearly apes. You know, it's just, it's so wonderful. I think we could, um, I think we could do a part two on children's books, don't you? I think we've yeah. got, there's a lot here. This is a rich scene. We've only scratched the surface, haven't we? Can I read you a bit from one of yeah. my faves, just a tiny little paragraph? Because I was just also thinking, you, you know how we, we were talking about es- talking about escape and solace and, and reading. And at the age of 12, I went to New Zealand and I had felt I had to sort of somehow keep my English kind of, connection with England and English landscape alive and you know I'm, I'm fascinated by how we end up selecting so I I kind of was I'd obviously read Alan Garner before I'd left and I'd started to read again it was one of those books I got out of the library I got a book called The Dark is Rising yeah. by Susan Cooper out of the library mm. and I just remember arriving in New Zealand in uh, probably in 19, the end of 1975 and she and, and, and Susan Cooper was the way I kept in touch with what I thought was my English, my English family, my grandparents, English landscape. But the beginning of The Darkest Rising, it's one of the best descriptions, I think, of how a landscape that is familiar and dull, you know, it's Thames Valley, sort of kind of small village. There are too many kids. It's, it's the, just before Christmas. And then the snow falls in an amazing and unstoppable way. And Will Stanton, who's the hero, wakes up in the morning. I just love this. He was in the twins' room still. He could hear Robin's breathing slow and deep from the other bed. Cold light glimmered round the edge of the curtains, but no one was stirring anywhere. It was very early. Will pulled on his rumpled clothes from the day before and slipped out of the room. He crossed the landing to the central window and looked down. In the first shining moment, he saw the whole strange, familiar world, glistening white, 
the roof of the outbuildings mounded into square towers of snow, and beyond them all the fields and hedges buried, merged into one great flat expanse, unbroken white to the horizon's brim. Will drew in a long, happy breath, silently rejoicing. It's just that mm. that moment that every child who lives in this country has of opening the curtains and everything has been transformed. I mean, there's, the book obviously goes fairly wild and wonderful. And there's a truly one of the truly great execrable uh, adaptations. There's an American <laughs> adaptation of it as a film, which if you want it just for shit and giggles, it's worth watching. It's a terrible adaptation. But I don't know, there's that those it, I remember the very moment of reading that book. And, and and sitting there and thinking, oh, this is like me. This is, I want it to snow. And I still always want it to snow. And I want to open the curtains and I want to see that. And I want to be, I want to be in the middle of an adventure. Um, I'm really interested by, uh, by that, that idea that it plugs into some aspects of yourself that you either aspire to or see yeah. as an alternative way you could be living your childhood your mm. life you know what Nikki was saying about so John you were saying you know it was a, a projected view of country you knew you had roots in but didn't live in and Nikki saying that she wasn't a girly girl but she she gravitated towards perhaps more traditional kind of books yeah. text yeah and you didn't even want to yeah. do ballet, but no. but ballet shoes becomes the thing that's kind of the projection of a version yeah. of you that you're not, yeah. but that you wouldn't mind being. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think. I, I, my favourite in that regard is probably Winnie the Pooh, just because uh, oh, you know. Well, no. cause it, well, she's also good on snow. You have to say <laughs> snow, and but Eeyore, you know, I just thought Eeyore, oh. I, I never. <laughs> I, I just I've I've really I based my whole <laughs> adult life <laughs> and persona on that. Because it always, Eeyore always struck me as the as funny. I mean, the, 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 he's, he's the, the best one. But it's one the liners. same with Peanuts. You know, the kids in Peanuts. That's what a brilliant idea for a strip. A depressed kid can only talk to his dog, and his dog isn't interested. You know, that's harsh. That's harsh. His dog doesn't even know his name. His dog just refers <laughs> to Charlie Brown as that round-headed kid. It's just, <laughs> that's real life. That's what my childhood was like, you know. And, so and, and in it's Winnie brilliant. the Pooh, you know, there's the, over there, there's Pooh and Piglet and their best mates. And who's that over in this gloomy place? Oh, it's, it's Eeyore making mordant Ooh. jokes about things. So, Nikki, do you want to, we should wind up we should really, probably for, go, for yeah, this yeah. part. Yeah. I, I had one question for you, Nikki, though. I just, do you think... I'm intrigued, Matt. I love the way you were talking about your tape recorders. Do you think your kind of audio, your 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 interest in audio, was sort of cultivated by the fact that you were you were kind of? I mean, that, that I think Andy's right. I don't. I you don't were an, think I know kids yeah. who were listening you to audio were, yeah, books. Same. In, you were an early wow. adopter. You were an early well, adopter. Think, yeah, maybe it was because I um I went on from the next step on from ballet shoes was taught radio. So I, I listened to talk radio at night. Which, what, which, LBC? It was the equivalent of, it was Robbie I think, Vincent. I, I think it's a perfect yeah, Robbie yeah, Vincent. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And, and, and I think it, yeah. it, it is... An old street yeah. feel to Robbie Vincent. It's, and I, it's, well, it's basically somebody talking to you. That's what it is. It's somebody giving you... It's, it, it doesn't really matter what they say. And I still listen. I'm the same. I, I have always listened to talk radio throughout the night, and I still do now. And so I think it's just that sort of lulling lulling you to sleep by gentle chatter and 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 i think you know 
there's nothing more gentle than than ballet shoes and you know unfortunately now it's sort of replaced by all night news but but i you know mm. perhaps i should go back to i'm thinking now if i i can't really listen to audiobooks at night now because I worry that I'll miss what happens. And it doesn't, you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas on ballet shoes, yeah. it doesn't matter because I knew what happened. I, yeah, that's that's the yeah, thing. It yeah. doesn't matter. I can listen again and again. I think that's, that's really, I think there's, the, I think you've, you've really identified something there, Nick. The, there is that kind of sweet spot, I think, somewhere between childhood and proper teenagerdom where you do get real comfort from the familiarity of something. Yeah. And I, I like, so we were talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I, I must have listened to, I taped those off the radio and I must have listened to them over and over and over again. You know, right, the tiniest intonation is totally familiar to mm. me. And so the jokes had worn out. I, I mean, I thought they were funny the first dozen times, but that's replaced. It's a bit like you then transfer that to music probably when you really begin to identify with records or records that, that really that, whose every nuance you internalize yeah you know what we should do next time yeah what should we do we should do teenage reading yeah so yeah. we've done yeah. childhood that's a reading. good idea because that changes for me yeah. it gets american that's the thing it goes from britain okay, to yeah. america although yeah, sweet yeah, valley yeah. high accepted well i'm just about at the, t- at the day we record this i'm just about to reread the catcher in the rye for the first time yes. since i was 19 Ooh. yes so I will report back on that for the next one of these that we do. Okay, that's good. Yeah, let's do teenage. That's I very think, cool. Okay, great. And uh, and I suppose to anyone who's listening, you know, come tell us tell us the the important books that were big to you to you as well, right? There must everybody's got them. I abs- absolutely. Yeah, we'd but love also, to. But also, also, I'd love to know. You know, you can email us and we'll read some of them out. Books, of course, but also less traditional things. You know, if you had an annual, if, mm. if somebody gave you the shiver and shake annual in 1975 and you just read and reread that, tell us about that or comics that you liked. You know, my mum and dad were brilliant. They let me read everything with one exception. Do you know, uh, do you know what the only what thing we weren't allowed to have in the house? What was that? Looking. <laughs> Why? Because it, a bit, yeah. Because it was a bit common, because it was ITV, yeah. so we well, weren't. Is. I mean, we watched yeah, ITV, yeah. so I don't understand why my, my mum. My cousins wasn't, weren't allowed you know. to watch Grange Hill uh, for the same reason, there you go. and we were all right, like, okay. "What? You're not allowed to watch Grange yeah, yeah, Hill?" Yeah. Did you get those really ridiculous, <laughs> the, like the Treasure Book of Answers and the Wonder Book of Wonders? Yes, there were all the those, one, the, the, wonder, the, the How and Why Wonder Book of Dinosaurs <laughs> was one of the yeah. most read books of my childhood because I was also dinosaur mad as well. So yes, I had loads too. of dinosaurs. Anyway, I think it would be interesting. We just keep going? Yeah, we could talk about this forever, but I think it would be interesting to oh. hear from younger listeners, people who are young in their thirties. No, because <laughs> there aren't there any. There must be some. <laughs> Uh, what the big books were for them. That's what I'm interested yeah, okay. in. Because I think they're... But not Harry Potter. Not Harry Potter. Read another book. Yeah, yeah. Not Harry Potter. Yeah. 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 So right, we, be- we better anyway. stop, right? Otherwise we'll we be here go. forever. Oh, what oh, fun. Thanks Fabulous. very much, everyone. We'll so be back for, for teenage years next. <laughs> Joyous. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.